Have you ever had a question so hard you thought you could stump your priest? Well, during a talk at this year's Diocesan Youth Conference in Augusta, a group had a chance to do just that. Father Vernon Knight from St. Mary on the Hill in Augusta and Father John Johnson from St. Christopher's Catholic Church in Claxton hosted a talk where people could ask whatever they had on their hearts. You might be surprised by some of the answers and even some of the questions ranging from extra books in the Bible to free will and the consequences of sin, and even the Catholic position on gay marriage. To make sure we give you good audio, we've re-recorded the questions in our studio. We hope you'll enjoy being a fly on the wall for this discussion. We sure did. It's Catholic, y'all. It's Catholic, y'all. It's Catholic, y'all. Welcome to It's Catholic, Y'all, a podcast series from the Catholic Diocese of Savannah. The Diocese of Savannah covers 90 counties in South Georgia, whose total population is less than 3% Catholic. Stories of life, love, and faith across cultures, traditions, and geography. It's Catholic, Y'all. So this conference is on stumping the priests. I'm not sure what exactly was this all about. I guess it's Q&A for us as exactly... What is it to be a priest, and what do we do, and what's our vocation, and basically to get ideas to what do we do on a daily basis, really. So, uh, so I, I guess I'll leave it up to you guys as to what are the questions, curiosities, and interests that, that your priests have. What do we do here in, this, in our parishes and in the diocese itself? So. Or you might have a question about the faith, yeah. some, some question, some aspect. So, do you want to just alternate taking questions then? Let's do it that way. I don't mind that. that that's great. And, uh, but you have to um, have questions, though, right, to ask them. So, think, think some stuff up. And there has been a professor of mine at the seminary who said there is no such thing as a dumb question. The only dumb thing is not asking it to finding out. So, In regards to what you were saying about the daily life of a priest, I was wondering, what sort of knowledge base would you have to have just for the basic care of a parish. The basic care of a parish, what do we do? A lot of the pastors, including my pastor, uh, Father Mark Ross, who's over at St. Mary's, uh, a lot of them do really rely on some of their staff who do have a degree in that area. So like we have a bookkeeper, she has an accounting degree. We have our secretaries who do have a degree in writing. And uh, for us, it's mostly we have a theology degree. But basically the fact of keeping an eye on what are all the things that we run, there's finances, there's the pastoral care of your church. If you got a school, what's going on at the school? We have meetings over at the school. Uh, we do have that of uh, finding out from folks of the care of what's, who's in the hospital, who's in the nursing home, who's dying. Uh, basically, just running uh, that parish is relying also on your parishioners as well, as well as the staff too, just going on a daily ba- basis, talking to them and finding out what's, what's going on. What are the concerns, really? So, do you want to answer? Um, you know, uh, a lot of being a priest, in fact, uh, a lot of people just think of it as simply a kind of uh, a spiritual ministry, and it is that principally, to be sure. Uh, and there's a lot of, um, there's a, a background in philosophy and then several years of theology. And, uh, and that doesn't prepare you for the, um, ad, you know, sort of the administration of a parish. You all are part of parishes. 
uh, and uh, surely see that there's a whole sort of set of things happening all at once. You know, I think um, it was uh, Henry de Lubac, one of the great uh, theologians and thinkers of our time, said that um, the modern diocesan priest is best when he's a Renaissance man. Uh, can do a little bit of everything, right? Uh, now, not, not saying that we're all Renaissance men. Does everyone know what that means, right? A broad and sort of liberal capacity, but uh, certainly that, that's uh, always best. Okay, next question. How do you know the stories in the Bible are real? Uh, I would say just simply in the first place, not all of the stories in the Bible would be literal, literally true, okay? So there is such a thing as different genres. So when you read Aesop's fables, you're familiar with Aesop's fables? Uh, those are uh, little stories with a moral to them, right? Something like Jesus's parables. They have a, a, a moral, they teach something that's def definitively true without necessarily having happened, right? So there are some narratives in the Bible that have the aspect of uh, a, uh, let's say, a, uh, what would we call mythopoetic dimension to it. It's not meant to be, it's an allegory or not literally true and yet conveys in itself a timeless truth. Then there's historical narrative, right, which is meant to be an accounting of what happened, the generations that were involved, the people and the players. And uh, there is a whole, uh, in this scriptural scholarship, has uh, come to include a whole set of other extra-biblical, that is to say outside just simply the Bible, a set of things confirming the various events in there and trying to understand them in those terms. So, and then uh, I would say lastly, so to take into account genre, that is to say the different kinds of writings and what book we're talking about and, and what was meant to be uh, conveyed, the truth meant to be conveyed, the actual literal historical account of something, that's, one, that's something different. And then to simply, uh, you know, is the proposition as believers that it is sort of all of it is divinely inspired, right? And its integrity is, is guaranteed by, by the Holy Spirit, right? So um, that's what we mean by divine inspiration. So, uh, so it's a whole, it's a set of things. Genesis is going to be different than the book of Numbers, right? The first chapters of Genesis are different than Chronicles or later on the gospel narratives, right? There's a whole different, all sorts of different things going on in Scripture. But all of it, uh, we believe, is somehow conveying and revealing something definitively true in a timeless manner. Is that fair enough? That's kind of a complicated question, though. Yeah. You want to add that? One of the best answers I ever got from one of my professors, uh, I had Dr. Scott Hahn as one of my professors. One of the answers he gave us was, you want to look at the Bible as not a history book, but a history of our faith, uh, because it's not an exact science either. It does give locations of places, but not exact time and certain things. But definitely it does have historical significance in it, and it does have a certain timeline uh, so it does convey truth, but really it should be looked at as a history of our faith. And that takes also the inspiration of those writers that have been passed on generation to generation. I mean, it's a wonderful insight of things that happened in the past, but don't look at it as completely as a historical book, uh, because it's not accurate in dating and stuff. 
Not always. Not accurate. always. Sometimes it is. Yeah. But it's an excellent question, yeah. Uh, next question. Anybody else? So if God is all-powerful, why can't he make everyone believe in him? Uh. We also have a free will, too. <laughs> it was a gift of free will that he gave to Adam and Eve to have a choice. A choice to either to love him or not to love him. It's the most interesting scene in the beginning of the Bible where he puts humanity right there in that middle of the garden. And he tells us little instruction. You can eat any of the fruit in the garden except this one in the middle. That was his only instruction. That's why we call it the Torah that our Jewish brothers and sisters call. The word Torah is uh, meaning instruction or a law. And so this is the first law. He's telling them you have a choice whether or not to eat this fruit. I'm giving you a choice. And so they made a choice. It wasn't the best of choices. But yet out of that also came a lot of great things as well, too. It was the beginning of our salvation plan, the beginning of what God wants to do for humanity. And that is sometime in that moment to be part of us and also be part of him. So that's why, that's why it's one of the most unique things he's ever given to humanity is free will, to have a choice. It's also the kind of question as why is there evil in the world and God is not there to stop it and all because it's a choice that we make. We have a choice of doing what is right or what is wrong and there are consequences about that too. So especially like natural disasters. You know there's so many natural disasters that go on and they're really horrific too and really bad but also at the same time it does bring people together too to help out each other to the best of their ability and that's one of the most wonderful things too of what we can see. So does that help answer the question? Oh cool. <laughs> Anything else? Any other question? You had one. I grew up a Southern Baptist until about a year ago and became Catholic. And one of the questions I get from my Southern Baptist brothers is to explain purgatory. Could you help me out a bit and explain that? So the word, you know, the word purgatory is taken from purge, right? It has the same etymology. Does everyone know what purge means? It means to purify or to do away with um, impurities. You know, there's a kind of simple way in which we all know uh, that at any given point, I mean, if you were to, you're a heartbeat away from death right now, right? We all know that when you pass from this life into the next, there's a whole set of things that are sort of unresolved. Even for people that have lived a long life, that's true, right? There are relationships and there's sometimes could be brokenness and the lack of forgiveness, whatever it might be. The point is a, the soul is not perfect. It's not yet perfect, right? So the proposition here about purgatory is firstly that, it's, um, it, it, is a, that it exists, number one. And secondly, that it's a process or a, a place where the soul is sort of made ready to enter into the fullness of the, what we call the beatific vision. Beatific vision meaning the, full, the fullness of human destiny and fulfillment in God and, and in each other, with each other. One of the things that emerges out of this tradition of purgatory is therefore the idea, firstly, we have three le levels to the church, right? The church triumphant, the church suffering, purgatory, and the church militant, or the pilgrim church. We, here on earth, it's a battleground, as we <laughs> think we sang a song this morning, like, stand my ground, you know, battle. So um, what I would say then is um, the uh, purgatory, they're saved, number one. But secondly, the notion of intercession for the dead 
is a, is a big ringer, right? That's a, that's a hang up. It's something that divides us, I would say. And it's all related to this notion of the doctrine of purgatory. And so, um, and of course, our reference is a proof text that, of a um, scripture verse that you don't have, in, or Protestant Bibles would not have, which is in 2 Maccabees, where Judas Maccabeus makes intercession, expiation for the dead. But our idea then is, but the proposition then would be that those uh, souls that have gone on and are not yet fully, you know, prepared to enter into the presence of God, by the way, that would be the only way they could enter into the presence of God and enjoy the beatific vision as being perfected, right, by an act of mercy on his part. Uh, that that's what purgatory is and that it is, it involves suffering, that it involves a process of purification. It, I would say it would be something analogous to when you pull a sword that's been forged out of the water, it's been hardened and it's sharp as an iron, you know, sharp as a razor, but it's still what? It's black and tarnished. So what's the, what's the, the, the final step? You can take it to battle. It'll work for you. But it's not, it's not fit for a king, that's for sure. What you have to do is you have to buff it and polish it and get it ready, right, for, uh, for battle. Something along those lines. Now, I was thinking also it's, it's a term that you don't find in the Bible, but so is the term Trinity, incarnation, and... Uh, the word Bible itself is not even found in the Bible. But it's something that's there that describes purifying, cleansing. Uh, there are evidence of that in Scripture. Uh, even though they don't have Maccabees, uh, Second Maccabees, there is a part in Revelation, the very last line, yeah. that nothing unclean shall enter into heaven. What is There's this? a whole bunch of scriptural right. re references to uh, Indirect scripture, right, that's right. And it's also going back to what Father uh, Johnson said was, about praying for each other too. It's still a tradition in our Protestant brothers and sisters. Will you pray for me? Oh, absolutely. Why would we do that? Because praying for the dead, praying for those who have gone before us, we're hoping for something to make it into heaven. That's our entire goal, each and every one of us. We want to make it from this life to the next, to be happy with the Lord and to see each other face to face. So does that help? Yes. You mentioned Maccabees. Why do we have two different Bibles? Uh, that's a long, yeah. Well, it's not really that long. It's not really that long. Well, <clears throat> it has to go back with language for one. Uh, we have what is known as the Septuagint Bible. Uh, there's a legend that goes behind that as well. During the time of Alex, does everybody know Alexander the Great? Okay, he was, a, he was, the, per, he was the Mesopotamian king, bringing of uh, Hellen, uh, Hellenistic culture. Uh, when he conquered the known worlds, and he was in his... If I remember right, he might have been in early 30s. I might be wrong. No, it's, you're right. It's been a long time since I've done this. Um, so when you conquer a nation, what do you do when you conquer a nation? Does anybody know? Yes, you spread your culture and your language. So he also dominated Israel and forbid the use of their own language. So they, made, they, so they used uh, Greek, but a very particular Greek. It was known as Koine Greek. And so the Jewish people only knew this language after uh, the time of being conquered. <clears throat> and so... With that language, they couldn't understand their own writing, their own Hebrew writing. So the, legend, so the story goes as they sent representatives of the rabbis to transliterate scripture. So they did. They transliterated. Legend has it there were over 70 of them. And they all popped out of the tent. This is a story. They all popped out of the tent. Here it is. We have it. Wait. Joe Smo just came out of there. You just came out. You just, what, what's going on? They all have the same writing same exact inspiration that was put together. And the argument is those seven books that are in the Bible were there before. 
There were Hebrew writings transliterated into Greek. And so they were taken out sometime at 90 AD during the supposed council of Jamnia. This was a council brought about by the Pharisees. No religious backing of that of the priest or the scribes or because they were wiped out during the 70 AD, the destruction of the t Temple of Jerusalem. When the Romans came in and stopped a revolt, not only stopped the revolt, they destroyed the temple. When they destroyed the temple, they annihilated the priest. There was no more sacrifices. And so what was left it was the Pharisees, who were the lawgivers. They were the, in charge of interpretation of the law, the Torah. So they decided that these books, they had no idea of the religious history of it, decided to remove those seven books. So in the time of the 1500s, Martin Luther, also having to back up with what, was ha what happened in 90 AD, took the same route, took what was out of the Vulgate Latin Bible, the, our Latin Bible, those seven books, because he agreed with what the Council of Jamnia said, because these were originally written in Greek. No, they were written originally in, Jew in the Jewish writing, Hebrew. And plus the fact is, he was a Jewish scholar himself. He had a degree in it. He was very, very smart, but it just didn't agree with his theology too. He didn't agree with them. He almost took out not only the Old Testament, he almost took out some of the New Testament, including St. James. The, the, quick, the quicker answer in one sense, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Oh, yeah. The history of the Septuagint is a, is a complicated story, but you're right. That one of the things, the consequences of that, just, just a curiosity point in case you're on Millionaire, it's why we don't know how ancient Hebrew or why he, what the original pronunciation of Hebrew was. For that, you're absolutely yeah, right. We don't know because of the, it was so roundly conquered and became the everyday, the Greek language became the language, the parlance, the, the, the vulgar language or the language of the people. And so they, they lost that. Isn't that amazing to think about? Uh, we still have the writing, the tra as you say, tra that's what transliteration means. It means translating it, but without knowing how to say it, <laughs> actually. Um, but uh, let, let me just, one thing, an important note is that it's, I think it's an important to realize that it's only in 1562 at the Council of Trent that the canon of scripture is finally and formally defined. There, there were approximations at definition and so on, uh, references through, throughout the years, but the point is it wasn't controverted until the Protestant Reformation. Now, there might be good reasons to question why we're including this or that. Uh, and uh, there were a lot of uh, reformed theologians, this is turning into a uh, college class, isn't it? University lecture. Uh, but there were good reasons maybe to challenge this, or, uh, this book or that book. But at the end of the day, the book that you get in the King James, or the canon of books that you get in the King James Version is a direct result of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and then the final touches by John Calvin. And uh, we were, we, uh, you know, sort of almost as an act of defiance, the Catholics, you know, uh, defined, made a formal a definition of uh, which books were in the Bible and which weren't. It's important to realize that the, the church never is going to teach something definitively as a doctrine or a dogma unless it's been challenged, right? It's only when there's confusion that there's a need for clarification, right? That's an important Thing to realize here. So as soon as it's put to the test, that's when, especially when there's differing opinions or propositions. Like for instance, let me give you a good example. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Does that mean that he has 
two separate wills? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I'll tell you why. Because without a human will, he's not a human being. Right? But he also has a divine will. It just happens that they're always set on the same thing. And so they exist without confusion, without commingling, but also without separation. Does that make sense? Hey, listen, let me ask you this. Did Jesus exist before he was born? Yes, as God and no as man. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> right? He clearly didn't exist as a human being, but did exist as the eternal son, as St. Saint, Saint John says. He existed before me, even though John happened to be older than him in the order of nature, right? Kind of added on to the Southern Baptist question. My cousin's family is Lutheran, so for them, if it's not in the Bible, it's not real. And for them, the Immaculate Conception is something that's almost blasphemy. In researching it, I find that not all Catholics agree. The first thing is, what is the Immaculate Conception? That's right. And what is, in particular, what about her conception? She was conceived without sin. Right, so uh, that's an important point because even so, someone was on the news the other night, you know, making some analogy for political gain, talking about immaculate conception. He didn't even know what he was talking about. I mean, he thought it was the virginal conception of Jesus. <clears throat> that's totally wrong. You know, you just lost 100 points. It's the, uh, it's the conception of Mary without, but her being preserved from um, original sin. That's right. And also in the state of grace. So to answer the question, and I'm going to let you come back. The first thing is there is a longstanding um, sort of a, a, the, a theological proposition about this with regard to Mary. Again, not formally defined until what was it, Pius the 11th or 9th? Yeah, Pius the 9th, Vatican I. Almost as though he were just trying to kind of drive a wedge in between Catholics. It was a very pontifical council. And this is the like, least ecumenical possible thing he could have like, dogmatized, right? But he pronounced it using the infallible formula, in fact, right? So he both defined his ability to speak infallibly and also then went on you know, to promulgate two infallible doctrines. One, the Immaculate Conception, and the other, what? The Assumption. Yeah. So it's so fun. It's interesting. It's interesting that he would do that. Well, to, to realize that both of these ideas were always in the, the Christian ethos, just so you know that. There are early church fathers. You can go all the way back to the beginning, the first centuries of theological sort of reflection and explication. St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas makes the argument for the Immaculate Conception without it being defined as a doctrine yet. This is back in the 1200s based on fittingness, that Mary, firstly, her own salvation came through Jesus, but preveniently. That's a convenient word, prevenient. You know what that means? It came before it came. But it is, the it is through Christ and in Christ that she's saved. It's, it's what we call prevenient. It's, yeah. it's another one of the types of, you know, the de infinite delineations of grace. So by his grace, she was saved, number one. And secondly, because she's the new ark. She's the new ark of the covenant. In her womb is the Lord God Almighty, right? No longer in the temple, in the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. She now is the new Holy of Holies. And through her yes to the Father came our salvation. 
It's fitting, in fact, that she be pre uh, preserved from the stain of uh, all injury and certainly uh, all sin. Uh, original sin is not moral, moral sin. Original sin is brokenness, disposition towards sin, right? And a bunch of other stuff to boot, including death, actually, as a consequence. It's, it's a kind of inheritance. It's not something we did wrong. A baby is born with original sin without doing anything wrong. It, so what we mean by original sin is that there's a brokenness in, in, in the spirit, a brokenness in nature. Baptism heals that. Moral sin is something altogether different. You know, uh, at, at the age of reason is when we start to commit what we call moral sin, sins we're responsible for. So that's the quick answer, and there's a lot more to say about it, but it's an argument that's it's a doctrine that can actually is very consistent with everything else we say about the mother of God, including the fact that she is the Theotokos, right, right that she know. is the mother of God. So, okay. Another way you could do it, I was asked the question before, is try to imagine Mary as a vessel, a pure vessel. And if the vessel had any cracks or dents in it, it would make it imperfect. And so being chosen to be the mother of God, to carry the Christ child, to carry something very holy, that she herself had to be holy before in order to carry something like that. That's why the great image of the Ark of the Covenant is used. Anybody know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? And there were two other items. Did you know that? Say again. Very good. A staff of Aaron, the Ten Commandments, and one more. Manna, which is unusual because manna would disappear after the day. The living bread that came down from heaven. What was Jesus always referred to as? He was the living bread that came down from heaven. He is the very word made flesh. He is law. He is the one who put all this together. And he is with the shepherd's staff. He's a good shepherd, even though, and his shepherds, his sheep, is us as brothers and sisters. So she was, had to be a perfect vessel in order to be, order to hold the most perfect being in the universe in order to do this. It's one of the best analogies I was ever given, that she had to be the perfect vessel before she even had, had uh, Jesus in her. And that's why we refer to her as the new Ark of the Covenant, so always. And being that most perfect being, meaning perfect enough to enter heaven, body and soul as well. She's an example for all of us that we're able to do the same thing. She's a human being, and she is given the highest honor, even above the angels. So, you have a question. Go ahead. I have two questions. Oh, you got two questions. Go for the first. The first one is, why can't gay people get married? Why gay people can't get married? And what is the second and one? And if God created everything, why did he create hell and Satan? Why didn't he create hell? <coughs> why did he create hell? Oh, I see what you're saying. Do you want to start off with the first one? So, um, right. Uh, can I just say that I think what you're asking is why can't a purported union between two people of the same sex be a marriage? Is that what you mean? Because formally speaking, you know, when you say gay people can't get married, what you mean is, is there such a thing actually in truth as gay marriage? And I just, I just mean to say there's a difference between the two, you know, because a gay person technically, a person with homosexual tendencies or uh, affections certainly can get married. It just can't be to someone of the same sex. And I don't mean to be trite when I'm saying that. I just mean to simply say 
is in fact that in truth there's no such thing as gay marriage. I'm really glad this came up actually because this is going to be something I think that you're going to have to talk about yourselves, number one, and might have profound um, just, you know, questions about it yourself. So I, I want to I start off uh, simply by saying this is an extremely sensitive subject matter and it's easy to talk about it in the abstract, right, as moral teaching. And another thing to address it to, to individuals one pair of eyes at a time, especially when they have family members who might be gay uh, or uh, they themselves might struggle or might experience same-sex attraction. So I just want to say that from the outset. There's a, there's one, there's a whole pastoral uh, need, I think, in our church to sort of address the needs that have um, emerged, especially in recent times, I think, relative to um, addressing uh, in ways that are both persuasive and also equitable, a way to address this question. Um, it, it, we're, you know, uh, anyone in their right mind would, would um, see that we're kind of losing the battle uh, in, on some fronts, just in the simple sort of explanations that we have to give in this regard. But okay, so with that notwithstanding, all those, that, put that aside for one second. What we're saying about marriage, firstly, is that marriage requires the full gift of one person to the other person. The full gift, in this, in, in this case, of a man to, to the woman, of himself. We're also, that's what love is, in fact. Love can be defined and understood as self-gift. It's the anticipation of that gift is that it be received. We all desire to love and be loved. There's a special way in which in marriage, this, this has a culminating aspect to it in the sense that the only way that you can really give yourself in love to the other is with your body. You don't have a body, you are a body. It's only as a body and a soul together that we're human beings, human persons. That's a really important point because your body's an instrument of love in this regard. The only way for me to be totally given away to my own spouse by virtue of my office is with my body. I'm a priest, which means I'm a celibate. But it's firstly doing something with my body, exclusively, given away, before it's not doing something with it. Does that make sense? This takes a special form in marriage when the man gives himself to the woman and the woman to the man. But for that to be complete, a one flesh union has to occur. That the gift itself takes the form of a one flesh union. That's biblical and fundamental, right? It's fact in marriage, just so you know, the indissolubility of marriage doesn't occur until when? That it's consummated. Later, in the, in the bridal chamber, in the, in the intimate act between man and wife. That's an interesting point. It's part of the sacramental sort of seal and all the rest. What we're saying then about gay marriage is that because of um, the fact that the gift of one person to the other cannot take a one flesh form in this case, that it lacks a kind of fulfillment. We're not saying that someone might not well have a sincere, in fact, really love someone, be compelled uh, to want to 
be committed to someone uh, of the same sex, a, another, a man to another man. What we're saying actually in the end is that that love ha doesn't have a fulfillment. That doesn't mean that we're denying the guy's humanity, nor the possibility for a happy life. It just means to say we are just as interested in everyone's fulfillment as they are. And by the way, it's Vernon, I think Father Vernon, you would agree with me. It's not us against them. They're, they're, they're in us. They're part of us. They're baptized Christians. It's not us against them. I think it's very often presented that way. It's just simply to say that on the level of what we mean by love, how our starting point as Catholic Christians is that love takes the form of the full gift of yourself to the other. And that that full gift of self is a bodily gift. And that that bodily gift culminates in marriage in a one flesh union, which is impossible between a woman and a woman and a man and a man. That the shape of the body itself bears in itself a language of love anticipated by the other as it is sexually differentiated. And the other thing is you want to also look at Scripture because Scripture is very clear on it too because the beginning of Genesis even says it. God created them, male and female. That's why a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, for the two shall become one flesh. It's reiterated in Matthew chapter 19 with Jesus. He also says that again, that a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, for the two shall become one flesh. It's very clear. We don't ever compromise that at all. Yeah, so that's probably the best place to even look at it as well. You want me to answer your second question? Why did, why did God create hell? It goes back to one of the questions about uh, why did God allow things to happen or so forth. We still have a free will. So he also gave us a choice of whether to love him or not. And I said there are consequences with that. And what are the consequences if we totally reject God? We go to hell. What is hell? It's an absence of God. Separation of God. What else? Eternal torment. Anything else? These are right answers. Keep going. Huh? Yeah, all good and love are absent completely. That's the complete torment itself. Punishment as well. And so that's why it was created. But who was the first to rebel by tradition? Lucifer. Does anybody know what Lucifer means? He was a light bearer. Yeah. He gave them a will, a choice, either to serve me or not to serve me according to tradition. And so Lucifer said, I'm not going to serve you. The tradition holds that God revealed everything to them. What is going to happen? The man is going to fall. And in order to save man, is I need to become one of him. And the angels looked at him like, well, Lucifer looked at him like, why? You're going to turn yourself into this lonely, weak creature? Why would you do that? Why? Because you're going to serve them, he said. You're going to serve them. They're going to be higher than the angels. He was right. So Lucifer said, no, I'm not going to do this. I am not going to serve a lonely, weak, unintellectual being. Forget it. So fine, you're out. And the ones that were out were cast into hell because of their punishment to not follow him. And so, and having to what they do, roam through the world seeking the ruins of souls itself. And so is humanity. We're given a choice. We're given a choice to either follow God or not to follow him. And there are consequences of what we do as well. And so it's really based on the person, whether to follow God, love God, or totally reject him and not even ask for salvation itself. So does that answer it best way? So here's the problem of evil succinctly. 
God is all good, he's all powerful and all knowing. Why is there evil in the world? Either God is not all powerful, he's not all good, or not all knowing, one of those. Or there is no God because there is evil in the world. That's the proposition, that's kind of the problem there. You see the problem there? He's not powerful enough to deal with it, or he doesn't know enough about it, or he's not good enough to, to, to uh, do away with it. Then we're not talking about God if he's anything less than all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Does that make sense to everyone? There has been more ink spilled on this question than any other question in all of Western philosophy and theology. It is a hugely problematic question, and if you struggle with it, fine. So do I. So did St. Augustine. So did St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a constant battle. St. Thomas says after his long track called De Malo on evil, uh, later sort of re reopened by St. Thomas, he says, from this question there is no exit. And he didn't mean to say there isn't good things to say about it, he, or ways to understand it and to probe it and to uh, pierce deeper. He just meant to say, it is eternally difficult because you don't have to be a rocket scientist to experience it. When someone gets run over by a car senselessly and for no reason, and it's, every, it's a total accident on all sides, no one's at fault, and it's the worst th possible thing that could have happened, that doesn't make sense. Where was God? That's a real struggle. It's a mystery that opens up there. One last point about evil. Evil is not something positive, right? It's not like, it's not like something that has an existence uh, in the same way that this chair has existence. What is darkness? It's the absence of light. So evil is understood to be an absence of a good that should be there. So any sort of difficulty or evil or suffering in this regard can be understood in this, in this sense, okay? That's why we can still say that God created all things, right? He certainly didn't create evil. But that makes perfect sense because evil is nothing. It's an absence of something that should be there. That's the important point, that should be there. So hell is, you know, Pope Benedict defines hell as a cry into the darkness with no reply. Total uncommunion. Whatever friends are, this is unfriendliness. You know, it's uncommunion. It's, it's, it's no contact. Isolation in its uttermost uh, form. And something, by the way, deter freely determined by whoever it is that potentially could be there. It's important to and know that the church doesn't teach anyone infallibly is in hell. Does that mean that I'm saying that, you know, no one's in hell? No, <laughs> that's exactly my point. We do teach that people are in heaven. They're called the saints, but not that anyone's definitively gone to hell, incidentally. Jesus makes it pretty clear that could be a possibility, though. Not could be a possibility. Definitely a possibility, right? <laughs> okay. Um, so I just want to say that it is a real, real question that is, there's a lot of intellectual rigor that's gone into it. And for me, it was really important, even before I graduated from high school, to start figuring out that. that it just, it really bothered me, deep in my heart, my soul. First paper I wrote was On the Problem of Evil by St. Thomas Aquinas in college. <laughs> 
And I started wrestling. And by the way, it was not, what I first read about it was not very satisfying. Returning back to the Marian topic, I've heard it argued that using the Immaculate Conception, Mary's acceptance of God, and Judas Iscariot's fatalism, that they've used it to describe that we have no free will. Oh, double, the double predestination. predestination. Not predestination, but double predestination, which came up from Calvin. Yeah. No, great question. It is a good question. So, so you're saying that because she's saved. I've heard it argued that Mary wasn't allowed a choice because she was protected from birth. So, right. But let me, let me just say, so this is a mis... This is, Let's, let's probe out, parse out some of it. Just because she's immaculately conceived, therefore, and without the dispositions, let's say, as a consequence of original sin, right, wouldn't have, I mean, let, let me put it this way. Christ was tempted. In fact, we consider his triumph over those temptations as what? A victory with the possibility of defeat, Right? I would suggest that Mary, um, Mary's freedom was not, I mean, in the same way that Adam and Eve were free. They were free in, in the state of grace. Freedom doesn't, I mean, just because she's uh, a perfect, perfect in the sense of without the stain of original sin and without an injured name, all the rest, doesn't mean that there wasn't another option, number one. And number two, um, you know, what I would simply say is that her freedom was, was uh, for, that, for the very reasons the Immaculate Conception itself establishes her, the fullness of her freedom, actually. E even fuller than, than it would be for us, if, if anything, if that makes sense. It also, I would imagine, meant that she suffered a lot more in this world, right? Someone who is acutely as sensitive of its brokenness, for instance. Um, as Judas, you're saying, because Jesus said it would, would have been better for him never to have been born? That, and it seems like it's part of the internal plan. Right. God sent, you know, God caused him. So this is a really good example of um, idioms, right? I mean, did, um, did Yahweh really close Pharaoh's heart just to destroy him cruel, cruelly? Did he really send the devil or, uh, you know, into Judas? The, the scriptures almost start to suggest that kind of thing. What I would say is that um, what we've, uh, there, there's a, 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 a repeating, for instance, a repeating idiomatic expression, uh, the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and also it translates into Greek and now into English, uh, understanding um, that's not literally true, right? Not literally, in the same way that we're not, by saying, lead us not into temptation in the Our Father, as though God would ever lead us yeah, into temptation, exactly. right? Well, what we're saying is, and protect us from temptation. It's an idiom, right? So I just wanted to say that up front. What Jesus said about Judas is much more problematic, in my opinion. Better for him not to have ever been born, but that's not the question you asked, so. We got about five minutes. We'll have to take just one last question. Who do you want to go for? There, yeah. People that are in the military and serve our country, sometimes they have to go to war. Oh, yeah. You're talking about war, th uh, the th uh, justifiable war theory. You know, those people have taken lives. Do you think that is a sin? This has been a, th this has been a topic from St. Augustine. I had to do a paper on it, and I wanted to rip my hair out, seriously. The uh, justify war theory was started by St. Augustine. I think Thomas Aquinas got into the same deal as well. I can't remember. 
Well, the topic is, is it a sin, especially war itself, is it a sin because of you're killing another? Um, the answer is very hard because the justify war theory actually begins with everything you want to do to avoid a war, everything. First, you want to negotiate with the uh, other nation as best you can. If that all fails, then you try other reasons of trying to find peace. If everything fails at that moment, the next thing is to try to clear out all your civilians, those who are not, not going to be fighting a war. You've got to get them out. Women, children, elderly, the sick. But those who are willing to fight, pick up a weapon and protect your nation as best you can. And then there are situations of what do you do at that moment? Do I take a life or not? This is still going into the whole understanding of, of that of your will itself. Um, uh, one example I remember my moral theology professor said, if an individual came into your house who had the intention of having to kill you, what are you going to do? You're going to protect yourself. That even means, might be, and hopefully, hope to God it doesn't ever happen, take a life of another. You're going to do everything you can to protect yourself and those around you as best you can. That might be picking up a, probably a lamp, everything to that from a gun maybe, but you're going to protect yourself. So that way, that individual doesn't harm you or the other. That may mean to having to harm that individual, but hopefully not to kill. Here's the distinction. You can pull the trigger knowing that someone's going to die without intending that they die, but rather be intending to neutralize unjust aggression. The use of deadly force, knowing that this is going to be the end, but you're fully justified in accepting the death as a side effect of what you're really doing which is neutralizing unjust aggression. Does that make sense? So accepting the deadly consequences in this case of uh, war, establishing firstly a good, as you say, a proportionate reason for accepting casualties, number one. Mitigating as best as possible, but accepting that there are gonna be innocents who die is perhaps a, a moral option but you're not intending that anyone die, actually. What you're intending to do is to neutralize the unjust aggression of an enemy. And you're not only so allowed to proceed in that regard, but sometimes morally obliged to do so. That's the crazy thing about it. But in either case, individual or in the fog of war, I would suggest to you that the one thing to bear in mind is that we're not ever intending that anyone die even the enemy, but that they be neutralized and no longer made no longer a threat, if that makes sense. That's the safest position. Now, with that said, I'm going to say right now, if any of you are military or um, veterans, I, I just thank you for your service, and I pray for you guys every day in this regard, not just uh, the guys uh, in the field and um, uh, on the front lines, but also on um, those, um, uh, you know, uh, in uh, the uh, area of strategy and tactical um, planning. It's, it's a huge, it's a terrible world warfare, right? A terrible thing. But uh, we pray um, for all, protection of all those involved. I, I think it's time's up. Yeah, it's already <laughs> three o'clock. So thank you very much. And thank you so much for listening. We hope you walk away with something interesting or a better answer to questions you might be asked. And if you have a burning question or topic you want to speak to your priest about, just hang out after Mass or invite them over for dinner. 
I'm sure they'd love to talk to you about it. Until next time, it's Catholic, y'all.